It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia! A quick friendly reminder, a bagpipe note A is actually a concert B-flat. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast where we explore movies through trivia to better understand the movies we love. I'm today's host, KJ, and with me is... Um... Additionally, joining us today, we have... Mahoney. And Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Mahoney. Mahoney has joined us for Back to the Future 2 and Super Troopers. Patrick has joined us for Broken Blossoms, Bride of Frankenstein, Michael Hahn, and The Third Man. Mahoney and Patrick still conveniently like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of questions. Generally, during the first round, the questions are worth a point each, and during the second round, two points each. After the movie quiz, we'll follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today, we are going back to 1925 to start our summer blockbuster movie block. In 1925, the first motel opens in St. Louis Obispo, California, the book The Great Gatsby is published, and the first Sears store opens in Chicago. During all this, Charlie Chaplin's movie The Gold Rush is released. Other big movies in 1925 include Buster Keaton's Go West, The Lost World, Ben-Hur, and another Buster Keaton movie, Seven Chances. Tom will be quizzing us today. Tom, what is The Gold Rush all about? So The Gold Rush features our friend, the little fellow, the tramp, um, Charlie Chaplin's most famous character. And he is in the late 19th century going west to prospect for gold. And while he's off prospecting for gold, he enters into a series of misadventures, including meeting the devious Black Larson, uh, a good friend, albeit a bit of a, a, a hanger-on named Big Jim. And of course, he falls for the lovely Georgia. Um, through this adventure, we see that Charlie Chaplin's little tramp um, maintains his sense of humor, um, maintains his intelligence and wit, and comes out the end rich and with the girl. JJ, if you had one word to describe this film, what would it be? Inadequate. Mahoney? Looney. And Patrick? Chili. And my word would be anarchy. It's time for question one. Where does this movie take place? Be as specific as possible. Locked in. Locked in? Locked in? All right, KJ, you locked in last, so you have to go first. The Klondike? Okay. Mahoney, you're locked in second. What do you have? Uh, I choose Alaska. And Pat, what do you have? I was going to say Alaska as well. All right. Very good. The answer is Alaska. Does does that count as the Klondike? I don't think so. No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Where is the Klondike? Where is the Klondike, actually? I don't know. But it has a lovely bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is points for Mahoney and Patrick. The reason why I brought this up is, um, you know, the, this kind of idea of going west, right? There's the, the famous Horace Screeley quote, go west, young man, you know, back kind of trying to find your fortune, this, this sort of, you know, embracing the American spirit thing. And I want to talk about, like, the movie setting and, the kind of comic spin the movie is taking on that, not just obviously the setting, but that attitude. 
the thing I thought was was particularly interesting, at least to my mind, was thinking about it was that this was within living memory for most of the audience, which is mm-hmm. it, it's sort of funny to think about because it doesn't seem like it should be. But uh, I mean, this movie came out in 25 and the Alaskan Gold Rush is in the late 19th century, 1890. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. 30, 30, 35 years with after their own lifetime. So this is something that would have occurred, you know, for somebody nowadays in 1980s. So this isn't like a a long time period. This is well within living memory for a lot of these people. And so I thought it was an interesting, it it was interesting to me to sort of see this, this presentation of, of the situation, which to your point, Tom, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite anarchic. It's quite, you know, sort of, it's got sort of a wild west feel to it, but it, it has a little bit of a, of a sentimental feel sort of a like remember the days of what we did back then and mm-hmm. you know how we climbed these mountains and did all these you know these great things and and I liked that sort of aspect to me it, it sort of reminded me of of a bit of some people living uh looking back on 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 sort of their trials and sort of the the things that they accomplished out of them which which I enjoyed at least I, that that was something that thought that I thought of a lot when I watched the movie it, it has like a greatest generation feel. Somewhere. Yeah, it, it's almost mm-hmm. it's not quite obviously it's it's not quite the same, but it reminded me almost of like a Forrest Gump kind of thing of like, you know, people watching like, oh, yeah, I remember those things happening. You know, it, <laughs> it, it had this sort of feel to I remember reading about that. Like, I remember mm-hmm. hearing stories from friends who went up there like it, it had this sort of feel of like a, a shared lived history to my mind. At least I, I thought so. Whether or not people at the time thought that, I don't know. But it, that's what it sort of. <laughs> It, it struck me as is that this was that while it seems like it was a very, very long time ago, this was well within living memory for the entire audience that was viewing it. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree. That would have been strange. I also think whenever I see something old timey, I always assume it's the Great Depression <laughs> I, or was released during the Great Depression, whereas this was bef- this was released before mm-hmm. that. Right. There was no notion of the Great Depression. Now, I don't know how well off everybody was in the 1890s. But a, a lot of these scenes, they're they're making fun of eating shoes and and these things. So I, I was wondering the people in the audience were they like, oh yeah, that was tough. Oh, haha, wouldn't it be funny if we actually tried to eat a shoe or went through some of the hardships that these guys were going through? Well, he wrote it after reading about the Donner Party. <laughs> So, oh, well, there you, go. So, you know, it was more than shoes. Yeah, um, that they were they were eating. But there is this like to Pat's point, um, there is this idea of like, the, you know, the the living memory, right? That this is not it, it's not like us watching Civil War history, right? Where it's just like no one is alive who did that or they're not even their children are probably alive who've done, who've done that. Um, but, you know, I think if I've done the math correctly, it's like us watching The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the kind of like '80s nostalgia, that type of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, like, you, it's like Stranger yeah. Things. It's like yeah. Stranger yeah. Things. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a modern, it's yeah. a modern day Stranger mm-hmm. Things. Yeah, um, but there's like you know, but it's still like this comic take on something that did encompass a, some tragedy, and I think the starvation was was hinting at the Donner Party stuff, which apparently was was from a very popular book. It was a, pop, a very popular book at that time in the in the nineteen teens, anyway published about that that chaplain had read and was like we have to do a movie about this you know that's my chaplain impression if anybody's ever heard him um he, he's the one who narrates the 42 version so uh there you go so as you know it was a spot-on impression but yeah so th- there is this kind of idea of of living memory going on there and I, I do like how you're talking about it pat how like it's like this thing we 
did, like this thing we accomplished, because there is this, there is such like a, a positive spirit to it. There is this kind of sense of accomplishment that for me, like kind of registered as sort of, um, sort of more greatest generation, right? Uh, you know, which also was very tragic and very terrible, but it was a bunch of people who kind of built camaraderie through difficulty to achieve something that has now become part of what we think of as being American, right? We're the ones who who beat everyone, you know, beat beat back the worst forces. And here it's like, we're the ones who went West, right? We're, we're the ones that go West. And Chaplin also is went West, right? As, as all the Hollywood people went. So there's this kind of meta textual feel to it because Hollywood is also kind of looking at itself as, you know, we're the ones who went to the boonies, which what Los Angeles was at that time and made millions. I, I think it was a nice choice. Um, I mean, when I first saw the title being Gold Rush, I thought San Francisco 49ers, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. I didn't think, oh, we're going to Alaska. Uh, so I think rather than just going west, the northwest approach to it, A, added that additional struggle and obviously stemmed from the Donner Party um, story and all that, but also clearly lent to the, the comedic edge when you could have the elements of the the blizzard, you know, both snowing them in and then the entire scene where, you know, he, the he's trying to get tossed out of the cabin, but he can't leave because the wind is keeping him in the cabin and then blowing him out the other door. Um, and all the other elements that an Alaskan gold rush story actually lends to comedy that your standard, um, you know, just kind of pan mining a, 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 a river outside San Francisco or, or somewhere else in California just wouldn't. So I, I think that was also a nice um, addition to it, which maybe at the time made a whole lot of sense since again, it was much more recent. But to look back now, whenever anybody mentions to me, Gold Rush, because obviously that comes up in everyday conversation, I always <laughs> think, you know, California. And that's <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I also think of California. I, I do think of, I think it has a lot more to do with the, the football team. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, when, I, when I saw the name, I, I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, Gold hmm. Rush, this is this is going to be a, a San Francisco Gold Rush because I, I kind of forgot there was one in Alaska. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I do like, you know, it, it's American, but it's also, you know, very far away. So it gets to be as American as possible, right? It's pioneer spirit. And also it is literally America that, that they're in. It's time for question two. How do we first learn Black Larson's name? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? All right, Pat, you're locked in last, so you got to go first. I think the first time you hear it is when the, the, the uh, police officer yells out his name when he's about, when, he's, when they, he meets him in the tent, because the police officer says it, it's Black Larson. Um, I thought it was on his wanted poster. I thought he was burning up the wanted posters to stay warm, and I thought his name was on there. Certainly his face was. Uh, yeah, I had his name was on the wanted poster back towards the beginning of the movie. All right, and points go to Mahoney and KJ. It was on... Ah, uh, almost, yes. It was on the wanted poster when we first see his name. It's Black Larson. They, they don't go with first names, only aliases on wanted posters. Um... And so I, I brought this up and, and Pat, you kind of started us on this. And uh, I, this was my word was anarchy was the, the sort of um, the wild Westness, right? This is 
this is the Wild West in, in some form or not. But the way that um, the way that kind of order is sort of emerging in this space and the the danger not only from the environment, but also the, the danger of having to kind of um, establish community in these like little pockets and little ways very quickly because of, you know, the harsh conditions. Um, and I was wondering what people people thought of that, how these little communities worked and functioned. There was one. I'm going to call it a joke, but I don't, I didn't get it as a joke, but on one of the intertitles, I believe after he comes back down off the mountain, he being the prospector, um, it said something like this town was built overnight. And the way it was written is you're thinking, oh, it was built while he was walking down mm -hmm. the mountain. And that town also felt like it just emerged now because there was the, the gold mm -hmm. rush. So yes, you had the wild out on top of the mountain with the blizzard and, um, Black Larson was somehow able to build that house. Did he steal that house? Like the cops weren't too far behind mm -hmm. by the time we're introduced to all this. Um, so it was kind of strange he could have established himself. Um, but then even the town, at least as written, was this is brand new. These people just showed up. Nobody has roots here. So I think the movie very blatantly tried to show the idea of at an emergent order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, what what was interesting to me was that, yeah, a lot of the because by you know especially by even the nineteen you know nineteen twenties even by eighteen nineties you know for the most part the the quote unquote west was one <laughs> you know it's it's sort of like the 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 wild the days of the wild west are, are mostly over by this point um, so to see this as a, a sort of like oh but it's still it's still pretty wild up there you know it's sort of like that that the that Alaska still is a frontier at this point um, you know and again within recent memory was a was a pretty anarchic place and. It, anarchic enough that to, you know that, that there's sort of there's two sort of major environments that sort of emerge within the within the film there is the 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 area outside of the town which has its own sort of rules and sort of you know there there is a sense at least i got it that like once you leave the town there's a totally different set mm -hmm. of rules out there that you get out there and, and the, you know there's there and there is but there's still an assumption that that people will sort of look out for each other like there is a um there's one of the subtitle cards says something along the lines of the fact that black larson gets sent out at one point to go look for food um and he finds food and the the subtitle says something like but he does not care for his fellow you know his fellows in the cabin or something like that so there's still there's sort of an ethical sense when you get outside of the town that there are things you're supposed to do and that there's things you're not supposed to do um you know so there is still some there is still some rule of law and to you know which is interesting tom to your point yeah there's also sort of these there's there's some police officers there's some sort of encroachment of law there's some attempts to sort of create some sense of order up there but for the most part there's a completely separate set of rules that exist outside the town and then you get in the town and for the most part it's got a pretty you know it's it's got a little bit more sort of less law and order than you might have expected in a regular town but there's certainly a more established sense of order and hierarchy that exists there um you know you can you can still have fights that break out in the middle of the the um the dance hall but it, it's not going to be as um you know it's it's not quite as as extreme as you know people aren't pulling guns for the most part although you know you can like the Georgia starts firing guns from the top of the bar, but you know, which, you know, again, still a little anarchic, but people aren't pulling, you know, a shotgun like Black Larson does when people show up in his cabin. 
Um, so there's there's sort of less anarchy within the town, and there's even a jail, which the which I love that scene where the little tramp dumps all of the snow that he shovels off from the other two houses, and he dumps it all from the <laughs> jail, and then, and then runs away from the jail. I thought that was yeah. really funny. Um, but yeah, so there, so there's certainly a sense of of anarchy, particularly outside of the town. There's still an assumption that people have a certain set of values they're expected to adhere to and if they don't that's considered a negative thing um but within the town there's still a pretty anarchic sense even with things like a jail and you know certainly a, a more established social uh situation but um yeah there's it's certainly a it's it's definitely got a wild it's got a wild west feel to it and maybe as a person who appreciates winter far more than he appreciates hot weather the idea of having a wild west film in the in the arctic felt much more entertaining to me than a wild west <laughs> film in the desert so maybe that's why I like we are it. recording on the edge of june for people who are listening <laughs> yes and for reference this is my least favorite time of year it is really muggy um i think even the setting with the the weather tells you alaska is a, a place with uh you know, very little order and, and is quite wild. I mean, even at the beginning, you know, when he's just kind of uh, walking the, um, the, the S curve around the mountain and that you just see the bear kind of plodding behind him um, tells you right away, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. <clears throat> you know, this isn't a place where, you know, society has taken over still. It's still, you know, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And then he just finds, happens to stumble across this cabin and maybe it was Black Larson's cabin Maybe it was the, the prospector's cabin and he was using it. Maybe it was just somebody's cabin and everybody just moved into it. Um, so you certainly, I, and I agree with Pat, you had the, the town set up to give you some idea of, listen, Alaska does, you know, have some civilization that people have sort of established themselves. But I think certainly, you know, everything from the weather to the fact, that, you know, the bear wanders right in the cabin's front door lets you know that Alaska as the whole uh, especially back then, was not a place that was even remotely tamed. So there's certainly a, a strong sense of uh, anarchy, especially when you're you're kind of you know outside of that that core of civilization. Yeah, I, I, what I liked about it is it's a lot of it's like homesteading too, like homesteading works, which apparently was true. There's this book I think I've referenced it before on the show, uh, the Not So Wild Wild West. I don't remember the name of the author. But um, have I referenced it before? I <laughs> see KJ's nodding. Yeah, um, I love it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which episode. Yeah. Maybe uh, Back to the Future 3 uh, something. or something. Oh, yeah, because that takes place in the West. That would make sense. Yeah, but it's basically the kind of the argument was it actually wasn't that wild. Um, this kind of kind of anarchic home, uh, not homeschooling, excuse me, um, homesteading system worked really well. And that's essentially what uh, Big Jim does. He's basically like, all right. I'm here. I, I like mine this land a little bit. It's my mountain of gold. I'm not really that worried about, you know, losing it or, or what have you. And, you know, it seems like even in the, the most wild part, which is the mountain, it's kind of like, if you can like plant your flag, people get that. And you don't, you know, the, the, the town itself has established a lot of modes of order in spite of the fact that it is, you know, on the periphery of, of society. And you, like you were saying, like she just shoots guns into the air indoors in a yeah. tavern. <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever. And, and people get in fights and, and all that type of thing. Um, I read, a, I read an, uh, an essay or I listened to, I think the, the commentary track for the Criterion Edition suggests that she is supposed to be a prostitute but I did not get that at all. I don't know if anybody heard that, but I, you know, whatever, like. The only, the only reason I 
thought that maybe that was a suggestion being made is because they have the photographs mm-hmm. of her that she's yeah. making. And I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be like, because, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't listen to the, to the commentary, but I wondered the same thing if that was a 1925s way of suggesting that she's prostitute, because, yeah, the, 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 there's a photograph that she's making and she's got, a, she's got a fairly decently large number of them, which is sort of like, why does she have these unless this is effectively <laughs> an advertisement? Yeah, um, that's, and and that's that was what I wanted. Was this 10, a, yeah. yeah, was this supposed to be? Was this a? Was this a? Was an? It was an advertisement. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be a part of the suggestion there. But again, it's it's not knowing the code that might have been used at that time. I wasn't sure if that was what was being suggested or not. I don't know how she gets that nice fur coat. Like all the, all the women in the movie. No, they all have nice it. And, and that's actually an interesting <laughs> yeah. point too, because they're all well-dressed. Like all the women, the women, mm-hmm. the women have no hints that they're not doing well. And there's plenty of men that are. <laughs> there's plenty mm-hmm. of men that are, that are, you know, even in the dance hall that are dressed like, you know, like tramps. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, they're, those women are, they're dressed to the nines. Yeah. All right. And after round one, we have uh, KJ and Pat with one point, and Mahoney is our leader with two. We'll see you in a moment with round two. See you then. Tom here. I just wanted to let you guys know about a new type of baked goods slash photograph fusion product that I've started using called Edible Family Portraits. Edible Family develops realistic-looking photographs that you can hang on your wall or put into a picture frame for your office. But these pictures are also edible. Want to develop a picture of Grandma's 90th birthday, but worry you might be ill-prepared when your blood sugar drops too low? Just grab that irreplaceable memory from off the wall and take a big old bite. Now in cookie, candy, cake, and marzipan flavors, edible memories are memories you cherish in flavors you love. You may want to save a photo of your childhood dog, Lucky, but when the hankering for some fresh marzipan comes along, who can resist? I mean, it's marzipan. Try some Edible Family portraits today. Edible Family, because forever isn't delicious. And we're back. Time to take a break from the trivia and get to know the guest a little bit better. Mahoney. If you could watch this movie with anyone, dead, alive, fiction, nonfiction, who would it be? Uh, so I had to fight very hard not to choose the same answer I gave from the last episode, which was just to say alive. Um, but <laughs> I think I'm going to cheat a little bit and say I'd actually like to watch it with the star of the movie, um, Charlie himself. And the reason I chose him was I was reading that this was his favorite movie. This is what he wanted to be known for, you know, for his career. Um, so a, I'd like to know, you know, why this movie, as opposed to all the others, um, and probably get into a a prolonged conversation with that, but also I'm intrigued by, you know, some of the effects, especially since we're talking 1925, um, you know, the, the cabin that blows away or the, the giant chicken or any of the other, you know, um, kind of fun things that happen throughout the movie. So I think for that reason, I'd actually like to watch it with the star himself. And Pat, if you could watch the gold rush with anybody, who would it be? 
I would, uh, so here's who I would pick for my person to actually uh, historic, I would pick a historical person. I would love to do Teddy Roosevelt because I feel like that's a, that's a guy who would have, who would have appreciated sort of the grittier, I think he would appreciate the grittier aspects of the film and sort of the comic aspects of the film. This is a guy who I think who had a good sense of humor, but also who certainly had a, had a strong sense of the, uh, the hardships that might have that the that the individuals might have been undergoing and so i think he would have been an interesting guy to have watched it with to actually see him and get his impression on sort of both sides of the film he strikes me a lot like big jim in the movie teddy roosevelt <laughs> <laughs> like like a more manic big jim like, like that's what i think yeah the, like you know big teddy roosevelt means taft or something like some little <laughs> taft i don't think was as manic but he's a big jim's a big boy um yeah but it, yeah it's 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 you know and you're right big jim has this sort of like just lo- and i love big jim i think it's such a great character just this sort of like manic energy just sort of just like you know i i, I liked that character and yeah it's a good teddy teddy roosevelt is an interesting comparison for uh for big jim so that that would be my pick i would say i would say teddy roosevelt would be my my individual I'd watch that film with. so i'm picturing this watch party right it's all of us teddy r and Charlie Chaplin all watching this movie together. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is this now another Charlie Chaplin film, right? Like Teddy R is getting mad at the screen and kind of getting big. And then Charlie Chaplin, at least in this movie, always looks small and he's got to kind of hide in the corner defending his film. Could, could this be a, uh, a skit where we have Teddy R, Charlie Chaplin? I feel like a few of us just become like bar patrons sitting in the corner drinking beer, watching the two of them kind of scrap <laughs> yes. at it. It's time for question three. What time is the New Year's Eve dinner party planned for that Charlie plans for the girls? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ, you're first. This was a tough scene for me. <laughs> Eight o'clock. <laughs> okay. I, I, I felt bad. I felt really bad, yeah. you know. All right. That poor prospect. That poor prospect with a little fella. All right, Mahoney, what do you have? Uh, I also had 8 o'clock. And Pat? Uh, yes, I had 8 p.m., I was going to say. So if I get credit <laughs> for, for being more specific. Because who knows? Well, who knows? It's December in Alaska, 8 a.m. The sun still would have probably been down at that point. So who knows? Could have been dark. Uh, yep. I, you know, Pat, I, I think I am going to give everyone the points, but I, I appreciate your fighting spirit. It's well within, it's well within the theme of this episode. So I brought this up um, in part because I, I really love this scene. I think this gets at all of the reasons why we like the Tramp character. Um, you know, it's, it's the sympathy he, he induces, you know, he, he draws out of us. Um, it's also his kind of ability to be playful with the, the very famous dinner roll dance goes on in that scene um you know it's kind of and also the way our heart breaks for him um through throughout his various adventures in this movie and in others and i want to talk about a little bit about like this idea of um a kind of universal figure or at least really recognizable figure that kind of passes into um into kind of our universal subconscious, so to speak, um, that we, we all sort of can recognize a meme that we can recognize and how that relates to kind of the, the nature of maybe the blockbuster. Actually, that's a lot I'm throwing at. Let's just talk about like the figure of the tramp and why that's memorable. 
So he's a he's a fish out of water mm-hmm. from the first frame he's on on screen, mm-hmm. right? Everybody else is bigger than him, mm-hmm. like by a foot or more. Yeah. Everybody else in this movie is everybody else that's a character in this movie is is way bigger than he is. Yeah. Yeah, he he is. I mean, it's it's there's a few of these characters who like we in our culture have sort of have sort of survived and have become recognizable. Like there isn't a lot of figures, I think, from like the 1920s who like most people can look at and recognize today. And I I think that is, um, you know, I I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that unlike Buster Keaton, I know Buster Keaton's your, your favorite, KJ. Well, I've only seen one Charlie Chaplin film and one, Buster Keaton film, and I just I, I thought Buster Keaton had better screen presence. Oh, okay, um, but yep, yeah. I, I think with with him is there's this kind of he is um, he's uh, not only is he kind of like funny and also very determined. He's always kind of truculently going forward, um, and and he's always scheming. Uh, but he is also very sympathetic and very empathetic in a in a kind of a very um, in a very simple way right it's like the the way he makes you concerned for him isn't in a necessarily overly nuanced way it's just it is what it is like in this scene the girls never show up and he's heartbroken and and he does in his own fantasy a little dance for them and then we cut away and we see he's asleep so you know i think maybe that's that's part of it um as well as the fact that there is a um uh a sort of, I guess you call it Halloween costume, a sort of a physical meanness to him, you know, a physical appearance to him that can be abstracted and register in, in different time periods and different medium media. He, he's the, the hapless underdog and everything seems to work out for him. I mean, even the, the beginning of the movie, he's wandering around Alaska looking like he's shabbily dressed for a dinner party. You know, he puts his cane down in the snow, he falls over. I love that scene, by the way. I love that when he puts his scene and he just laughed. He ends up in a cabin eating his shoe. Next thing you know, a bear happens to walk in. He shoots it and they have all the food they could possibly handle. Um, yeah, he meets the girl. He meets the prospector who has the mine. I mean, he, he's the epitome of the guy who, who looks like he shouldn't amount to anything because he's you know a foot and a half shorter and 100 pounds lighter than everybody else, isn't dressed the right way and has no basically sense of kind of how to conduct himself, but yet somehow ends up with a bunch of money, the girl, and and essentially at any turn when things could possibly go awry for him, he, he kind of comes out smelling like roses. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing I liked about the scene is the, um, you know, I, because I, 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 in, in my head, at least, I was kind of comparing it to like the, the other sort of quote unquote meal scene, which is like when, you know, I guess, I guess there's a few other meal scenes throughout the film, but like it is when the uh, big Jim is, you know, sees him as the chicken and is trying to shoot him. And I mean, that's obviously the real, you know, if you quote unquote, you know, that's a real situation, you know, if you're thinking about it, but sort of that one comes across as quite comic, obviously, for obvious reasons, like, you know, the, the chicken suit and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, but that's, you know, I mean, that's sort of the, more theoretically the scene that has the actual potential for tragedy that big jim could shoot the guy and shoot the tramp and eat him but it's obviously comes across as quite comic and we know how it's going to turn out we know it's going to turn out well this one though 
actually comes across as the tragic scene because you don't actually know that it's going to, you know, you don't know, at least I didn't, I didn't know how this film was going to end. You don't know that he's going to end up with the girl. And, and it's sort of, it just has this, that scene is just like, I, you know, and I, I know KJ, your word was inadequate, but man, that scene is sad, <laughs> dude. That scene is brutal. Yeah. When they don't show up. Oh my. I, and you, I, I, I thought, especially when they were like, oh yeah, we'll totally show up. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. They'll show up. And I thought something was going to go wrong at the dinner party. That was what I had in my head was going to go wrong. And it was going to be some comic thing like him lighting his foot on fire kind of thing or something like that it was going to be this sort of comic thing and i thought that that's what i thought was going to happen the fact that they don't show up and you just see them at the barney going oh no they're not gonna show up and like, i felt so bad like so bad for this poor poor dude you know and then he's doing his like and his you know his thing where he's because in my head i was also thinking like she's got the she has the line where she says i wish i could meet somebody who's different you know and he overhears her wishing for someone's different and you could tell he's thinking is well i'm different i'm not like all these other guys that's why he's doing this little dance with the the shoe the, the dinner rolls and like he's just thinking in his head he's like i'm the guy i'm the guy that's different i'm the guy that's going to be great for you and i'm going to show you all these great ways and then oh man that scene is brutal and even though you know it's not gonna that scene's not gonna end well that is the tragedy kind of tragic scene and i love the fact that he does that that he takes a scene that's that actually has the potential of tragedy and turns it into comedy because he has a little chicken strutting around a room and he has you know this whole thing and then he takes a scene that should be a comic scene and should be one where the tramp lights his foot on fire and does something stupid and he just turns it into just absolutely brutal i loved the fact that they take those scenes and just twist them i loved that yeah it was like reliving four years of high school and in- 10 minutes on screen right it was, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It was i thought rude. i had a very very similar thoughts like it was just like, <laughs> oh, man. And, i mean tom was obviously the football star well, so he did the same thing they weren't star defensive ends <laughs> yes the, the ladies like the football chaplain combo <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was definitely those those like oh god i know that feeling like that's just yeah. brutal yeah and to clarify, uh, when I said inadequate, I wasn't describing the film. I was describing the character. I was saying he was the tramp. He was the. <laughs> oh, I <didn't>... but <laughs> I thought you did. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought, I thought you didn't like the it. Movie. That's what I thought. I was no, like, I was... God, that's really harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would the adequate version look like? <laughs> yeah, but he also kind of charms you, right? It through that scene, like he kind of wins you with with the dinner roll dance. Which has been impersonated um, a ton of times. Um, have you seen the Simpsons one where they do it? There's oh God, who done? I don't remember it. No, there's a great Simpsons one where um, uh, Grandpa Simpson is out on a date. Like, and again, it was one of those moments. I'm like, oh, that's yes. what he's referencing. And it's out on yeah. a date, and it, it, with uh, Marge's mother, and he starts doing mm-hmm. the, the dinner roll dance, this kind of thing. And then a bunch of lawyers show up, and they say, like, we must insist that you desist on this. Yeah. You know impersonation of the charlie <laughs> <Chapel>. <laughs> yeah i i do remember that now um is I, I the ones i remember were uh robert downey jr who played chaplin in a movie called chaplin and then um johnny depp who plays like a a guy in like i forget what benny and june was the movie and basically he's obsessed with silent movie comedy comedians 
and so he does that like his character is i don't know i didn't see all the whole movie but um whatever yeah <laughs> um but yeah it's been kind of impersonated a lot but i think it's also the the thing with him too is he's always and keaton does this as well he's always kind of on the edge of everything um that that's like a lot of even in the beginning when we first meet him and he's walking through that mountain like he he kind of walks right up to the edge there's a bear behind him you know that type of thing um or even in the uh in in the last scene or the not the last scene but the second to last scene where he's in the cabin and the cabin you know he's he's flopping out of the cabin um <laughs> you know that that kind of that kind of thing he's he's he like deals with these potentials for tragedy um and these actual kind of tragic things like you're talking about with the dinner roll dance through charm he's sort of like um tr he he's charming and being tr and kind of getting through it he gets to the other side of whatever it is he does get the girl he doesn't you know fall off the mountain right he ends up getting the millions of dollars and so there is this kind of, you know there is this kind of like little achievement type thing going on there as well it's time for question four. When the Tramp and Big Jim first walk onto the boat after becoming millionaires, what does the Tramp do to portray his actual class origins that Big Jim stops him from doing? Locked in. Locked in? I'll lock in, sure. <laughs> All right. Chris Mahoney, what do you got? Nothing. I mean, I remember the walking on the boat, and I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, KJ, what do you have? Uh, did he, did he stop to clean something? Did he stop to pick something up? What's was there? He he started to do something that any of us would have done. I thought, but it was oh no no you can't do that now because you're a millionaire. Um, I thought it was to like stop to clean or or serve a tray or a drink. I'm I'm picturing Overboard, the movie with Goldie Hawn. <laughs> You guys ever seen this? No. <laughs> no. She's, she's rich. She gets amnesia. She comes back to the boat and she serves them uh, a drink and, and her mother's appalled that she would do this. And I'm thinking Charlie Chaplin did something similar. Okay. That's a terrible answer. So, so Goldie Hawn. Uh, and Pat, what do you have? <laughs> he tries, I remember it. He tries to recycle an already smoked cigar. He tries to re-smoke an already smoked cigar. All right. And the points go to Pat. Yeah. Very good. Yes. And before we talk about this, um, that's a tie, oh, right? Is that a three-way tie? No, Pat takes it. Oh, you take it? Oh, very good. In the end. All right. Very so wait, good. wait, did I get it? Did I get it? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Yes! The... Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> For those at home, he's jumping up, waving his hand and his beer stein all at the same time. <laughs> the most enthusiastic win on Talking yes. Pictures Trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Very well, few of our guests care. We never have these. They never. They never this close. This was close. Yeah, this was right this down to the. Yeah. Well done, Pat. So let's talk about this. And I, I brought this up because I want to talk about, and we've covered a lot of this, I think. But this sort of idea of the fantasy of wealth, right? That you know the the fantasy that they're all aspiring to, and and that type of thing. And the fantasy that's also within a fantasy, right? I mean, it's, it's movies. That's kind of what they're selling. And, you know, the, how these kind of things envelope together and how they're then delivered. I mean, I guess I mean, maybe this isn't quite what you were getting at, but in, in my in my head, and I don't think you've done this movie, and if you ever do it, please invite me, is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
um, mm-hmm. which it's a very different movie. Um, but you know, it, it, it certainly deals with people's response to acquiring wealth. Um, and, and obviously to your point, Tom, and, and actually I think that's a great word for it is it's, it's a, this is a fantasy, you know, this is, this is absolutely not a, a realistic film in any sense of, the, uh, in any sense of the word where, you know, Terrence and Sierra Madre is actually quite a realistic film, I think, in, in terms of, of psychological reaction, but in, and what I kept thinking watching this movie was sort of like, and especially those final scenes with them sort of, you know, marching on their boat with their, you know, their cigars and their money and, and their sort of, you know, that, that, you know, yes, there's this betrayal of, of who they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it sort of reminded me that, that it's also, these are, these are fundamentally good people. Um, and so there is sort of a, there is sort of a, a celebration you can kind of have in their success that you can't have in, in a lot of other films that sort of, you know, focus on wealth acquisition, you know, and the mm-hmm. other, the other film that sort of popped into my head in, again, obviously a very, very different film is No Country for Old Men, which is also a sort of a Western film in which an individual acquires a lot of money and that does not end well, um, you know, and there's, there's this sort of sense that, that wealth doesn't change us per se. Um, and yet this film, even as a fantasy film, sort of still carries that. Um, and, 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 you know, even the, um, you know, the fact that, yes, the, um, the, the tramp tries to pick up a cigar and smoke it, but even Big Jim, when he tries to have his nails done, the woman tries to clean his cuticles, and she says, no, 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 clean my corns, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, yeah, these guys ain't class, <laughs> it's like, they, they still betray who they are, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of films that deal with wealth acquisition sort of deal with that theme that you still can't change who you are, and I feel like this film did it in a, in a, in a quite comic manner, whereas other films that are sort of Western films that deal with people coming across lots of money um, often focus on the fact that on a, on a more dire sense that they are not who they, that they, that they never changed who they were, whereas this film sort of did it in a comic sense, which I, which I appreciated. I don't know how much it has to do with class, but I did like at the end when he gets caught as the stowaway, he doesn't try to defend himself. He's almost curious what's going to happen. And then somebody else comes and says, no, 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 this is the rich guy on the boat. Like, you don't have to take him away. This is the multimillionaire. Um, right, right, right. Um, but I think a lot of... No, it's, it's, this what... is Big Jim's partner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> partner. <laughs> but I think a lot of what works for the Charlie Chaplin style of comedy is he doesn't defend himself. When things go wrong, he kind of lets it play out. Or he's like, yeah, it went wrong and I'm not going to try to... I'm not going to try to say, no, 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 wait, like I didn't do that. Or, you know, I'm supposed to be here or I'm not supposed to be here. He doesn't try to uh, assert himself correctly as he could have in that stowaway scene. But what's interesting is he doesn't, he won't defend himself necessarily, which I will agree with, but he'll defend others. And defend Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. Something like Georgia. He'll step in to, to defend somebody else but for the most part sure. yes he defends it you know even even when big jim shows up at the cabin he would have left that cabin if big jim hadn't shown up but because big yep. jim shows up he'll hide behind him but he'll defend somebody else but not necessarily himself mm-hmm. which is an interesting yeah. point probably another reason why he kind of transcends right he, yeah there, there isn't a sense of selfishness in him right you, you know you, you're almost like he's prospecting because 
that's what people do. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's what we do now. We, we go prospecting. You know? Yeah, and, we live in a cabin and, and now we're on a boat and now we have a lot of gold and it just, it's just these things, I don't know, happen to him as opposed to he kind of goes and seeks them. He's just like, all right, we're here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and all it takes is he, he puts back on his miner's clothes, falls down some stairs into a coil of rope and he, he goes from Big Jim's partner, the multimillionaire, to the guy who's going to get tossed. And he's just kind of like, oh, I guess we're back I to guess this. We're back to this now. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's not even a dramatic turn. It took all of, what, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think he's just, he's accepting of whatever it is that he's, you know, he, he's still the same guy, whether he found a gold mine, whether he's, you know, walking through an overpass in a, I don't know, a leisure coat, basically, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, trying to pick up the girl. He's kind of the same hapless person, regardless of what it is. And whatever happens to him is what happens. Did Chaplin sort of know a little bit about like the, the every, the every man, like sort of the, the medieval oh, the, concept? Oh, you know, I don't know. Um, the, the figure itself of how much you knew about, you know, like the every man, um, that type of thing, just cause it's like, I mean, every man is also, if you think like literally the medieval concept of the play from like the, the late 15th century, it's like not, you know, not comic at all. Right. It's like, no. it's, it's teaching you a lesson. I, a lot of this was based a bit on a character that his father would do. It's not exactly that he kind of built it when he was with the Keystone production company, which is where he, he started in America um, before he did his own, started directing his own films. Um, but it was based, but his dad was like, uh, worked in, who basically abandoned him, but uh, his dad worked in sort of these like beer halls. And the idea was like, you would be a character and like sell beer, right? You would do like a little, like little skits like this and try and, and hawk beer. And it, it eventually um, killed his father because he also drank a lot of the beer and got cirrhosis of the liver. And you know, that's not very good for long life. I think he, I think he died at like 38 or something. Um, but I, I think it's more based upon these kind of like like boozy slapstick dance hall characters. Um, that's actually where Buster Keaton came from too. Buster Keaton was nicknamed Buster when he was a child because he was very good at like taking a blow on stage, which is basically what his parents, you know, his parents kind of insisted on him being on stage and working with them. And, you know, he was, he was very good at that. Um, and, and that's more of where it comes from I think then an, an honest every man, because I think like the honest every man is more of like the blank slate that people would play off of, as opposed to like, um, you know, he, he would be like, the, the every man would be like the amore, right? Like the, the lover who like people could identify with. He might not be technically an every man since that we're all like him, but we could at least think we are more like that person. He's more normal. And then around that figure is all these kind of slapstick, crazy pantaloon types, uh, you know, um, who who are the ones who actually make you laugh. And I think he's more of that, or an, or he's he's inheriting those kind of memes and tricks as opposed to inheriting the the everyman type thing. But it, but it, it kind of it does. It's interesting when you talk about like him as an everyman because there is this sort of identification with him that we have. Um, that is, I, I don't think, kind of typical of, of like Commedia dell'arte. Um, and I think it does have to do with the fact that, like, there isn't this, like, respect of class type thing 
even though the world he came from has more of that, you know, the kind of London, London entertainment industry or just England or even before that, Italy. Chaplin isn't from Italy, but, you know, a lot of these I mean, the characters. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that there's much more class distinctions. And a lot of his movies tend to be, um, he tends to be playing working class people who are in the position that audience, your average audience member would be in. So even though he isn't an everyman in the sense that he's somebody you necessarily would would look like or act like somebody in the house. He would be more of the comic relief. Yet he's often occupying the positions that people in the house would be occupying. So is this, could could you make the argument that he's a new Commedia dell'arte character? One that didn't exist before that he has created himself? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I, I yeah, I think that that works. And I think that the context is important, right? The kind of like, you know, that that you're in this kind of new country i mean it's it's old by 1925 but whatever like it's it's you know the west is kind of new in terms of how it's entertaining people it is a presumably a classless society even though obviously there's classes they're just not official um and so he could be and and it's also the roles he chose which were like i'm going to be the guy who works in a factory like in modern times i'm just going to be that guy or i'm going to be the guy in the depression like in city lights where he's down on his luck and is really trying to make, you know, put things together, kind of put money together while he's living in this urban environment that's sort of falling apart because it's the Great Depression. And so it's kind of like a non-everyman dropped into these everyman roles who elicits both sympathy sympathy, and laughter by virtue of that he's a great comic talent, but also that he just knows how to, you know, how to get some tears out of you. It's time for movie rent. Did anybody else love the scene with the dog coming out on the floor and him holding up his pants with a cane? Yes. <laughs> that, that I was, loved that. One of my original questions <laughs> were was a point for each way in which Charlie Chaplin keeps his pants up. When I mean, that would have been, that was hilarious. <laughs> 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 that scene was awesome. I la- I laughed like that was hilarious, especially when the dog shows <laughs> the dogs like following yeah. him around. I thought that was yeah. really funny. But... Yeah, that whole dance hall <laughs> scene was like from beginning because it like starts with him like it like shot from the back. Well, it's shot from the front and then shot from the back, and you see just everybody kind of walking away from him, and it just silhouettes him, and it's like this beautiful like little shot. Um, and then it like moves into, you know, that with him, like dancing with her and getting in fights with, oh God, what's his name? It's not Jim. It's Jack. Jack. Thank you. Yeah. With, you know, with Jack and, and, you know, knocking it. Apparently like the clock idea was just, they went into the prop closet and apparently like one way Chaplin work was like, they would just look at a bunch of props and they're like, can we use anything? Can we use anything? How about, how about, what if a clock fell on him? Would that be funny? But apparently that's just how he worked. They barely, they often didn't have a completed script, but yeah. It's like the Rube Goldberg of fights. I'm going to punch this pillar. The clock's going to fall off and knock him out. <laughs> yeah. Did uh, anybody else get reminded of Biff when they saw Jack? Kind of how his, his motions were and his, his bullying style? Yeah. yeah like, like Biff from, from Death of a Salesman? No, back to back no, to the future. Back to, I was like, back to the future. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
it, it's almost like a bully is a bully is a bully. I, you know, I yeah. wonder how long that 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 concept has been around of just like the bigger guy who just kind of muscles the little guy. I, I imagine maybe forever. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine forever. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't think of what would be the oldest story of a bully. Like I'm sure there's punches pilot. Of- <laughs> <laughs> or David and Goliath. Let's let's step back a little. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's actually that's a, not that yeah. far off the mark. It's not yeah. that far off the mark. Yeah, no, that's pretty, pretty close. Good. Yeah, I can't think of well, I can't think of a lot of literature before the but, Bible. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of like ancient Greek. I mean, there's certainly. I think if there's like an Aristophanes, like it would probably be like an Aristophanes or something. But there's probably something in there. Yeah, I, I saw. I can't think of anything though. There's like something with Lysistrata, but it, it's also like all the men in it are kind of dummies from what I remember of Lysistrata. So I mean I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure actually thinking about it now, there there is a um I can't remember which one it is. There is a play by Euripides where he has like Hercules like or Heracles like wandering around like drunk like in a palace mm-hmm. while everyone else is like in mourning, but they don't want to tell him and he's acting like a total dude. I mean, it's sort of got that kind of feel of like the big dude who's just being mean but doesn't totally get it <laughs> like <laughs> so I, but i feel like yeah that that's just sort of a type and a, and a great type mm-hmm. um because i actually it, it, i i actually googled the guy because i was like i'm like Does this guy play another role he looks really familiar and i think to your point it's probably just because he probably looked like biff from you know back to the future mm-hmm. yeah and uh, in this case you know uh, charlie was an actual chicken briefly so. yeah nah. What, yeah. what are you, chicken? Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. Chicken uh, in the last scene. Because yeah. <laughs> the thing is, though, the movie? it's interesting because he probably has, like, you know, because a lot of them have, like, a lot of makeup and they kind of do, like, the crazy eyes and this kind of stuff. But, like, he probably had, like, the most natural movements, face, sort of, like, the most sort of, like, if it was a modern actor you wouldn't have been totally shocked by that performance mm-hmm. whereas a lot of you know like obviously like you know it's it's just it's a certain you know style of acting but it's like if if big jim were acting like like that nowadays they they wouldn't he wouldn't get past the cutting room yeah. but it's like he's he's the the i forgot his name again what was the dude's name again tim the big jack the big the bully jack, the big dude. thank you jack yeah yeah jack. jack is the bully yeah yeah mm-hmm. jack Okay, so him, you know, that he certainly had a more realistic kind of style of performance, but I liked, I, you know, again, all, all of the characters like a believe in the, mm-hmm. even, even him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sort of gets over it, right? Like, like after he gets knocked out, it's, it's not, you know, he, he's not like, he's not the villain of the piece. Like, you no. know, Black Larson is, like, Black Larson is posed as a He's villain. a force of nature. Like, Black Larson yeah. just sort of shows up, breaks things, and leaves. <laughs> and then just dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and dies. <laughs> he in, he in just dies. Yeah, and I also like how the cops are completely incompetent. <laughs> like, they just accidentally wander into him. And, it, you know, even though he, they just stumble upon him, they still get shot and killed. And the only thing that stops Black Larson is, you know, accidental avalanche or you know whatever that is nature has a justice of her own well they do have that line right it's like uh like the north a law unto itself i think was one of yeah, the yeah, titles yeah whatever whatever yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 so that that kind of fits um but apparently those special effects are also pretty revolutionary for their time 
Was I mean, when he falls out of the cabin, it's, you know, I mean, again, mm. it's obviously like fake, but it, it looks, you know, at a first glance, that looks reasonably good. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's, got a, like, it's got a King Kong-esque feel to it, which is mm. like, you know, it still looks at a first glance. It's good. Mm-hmm. And King Kong's like, what, eight, nine years away, right? Like it's. Yeah. This yeah, is... King Kong's 33, I think, 32, yeah. something like that. Somewhere around there. But yeah. it's got that feel, because even, like, it's like, you know, when the little dummy thing falls out of the house, like, it, its legs move, mm. you know, and then it, like, flies <laughs> back into the house. Like, it's, I'm like, that probably took a ton of effort. <laughs> Getting, mm-hmm. like, that was a lot of shots. You know, it's one of those things where, like, I imagine that was not the easiest thing in the world to achieve. Yeah, it was his cinematographer who did all that, whose name I forget right now, but he came up with the whole idea of like doing things in miniature and like, he just kept insisting, like, don't worry about it. We'll just do it in miniature. Stop worrying. <laughs> but what they had, it was called, um, I think it's the bell and howl camera was this pretty innovative camera for the time where it literally like a dissolve was a switch. You had a switch on the camera and it could dissolve and you had a double magazine. So nobody can see it because it's an audio podcast, but um, you had like one magazine sitting on top of another so if you wanted to film like somebody jumping from the cabin onto the ground, what you would do is film the miniature of the cabin falling over. You'd put that in one stock and then you'd film like a guy just on a soundstage and he'd jump and the one stock of film would be pressed onto the other. So the two, two stocks of film would be pressed on top of each other. And so it just looked like he was jumping out of, out of the camera. That's uh, really cool. Excuse me, at cabin. Yeah. Um, which apparently that's miserable to film. How do you get them yeah, to line up? I, I think you just have to like be very careful because <laughs> you'll like ruin oh. your 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 shot if you don't. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think this is why he worked with the same cinematographer his whole career. It was it's like the guy would like come up with his stuff and be and I think Chaplin was suspicious at first until he showed him. He's like, don't don't worry, this will work. And it was like. And I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. You know, he, he doesn't sound like Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> was that Chaplin Mick Jagger? This evening are not exactly spot on. <laughs> I don't even know if that was Mick Jagger. Was I, I don't know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to once again, and I think Charlie Chaplin would also like to congratulate our winner of the week, Patrick. Mahoney's not happy. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any reviews, as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Are you considering prospecting, and Why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listener episodes. Thanks again, Mahoney, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Also, thanks again, Pat, for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. You could find me on Twitter at Thomas Lehman, 15. And you can also uh, tune in for B-Side, uh, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. I, I, I think I'm a week behind on those. I'll get them done. No worries. Um, but in B-Side, we go into a little more depth in the movies. So please subscribe to that as well.
And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. Join us next time as we continue our summer blockbuster series and discuss Nick's summer blockbuster recommendation from 2001, The Fast and the Furious. Stay tuned for our first impressions of The Fast and the Furious. Ding, 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 ding. This is Fast and Furious first impressions. This is Fast and Furious first impressions. <laughs> echo, echo. <laughs> well, we got to be fast because we got to record. Fast and or furious. <laughs> <laughs> but please pick fast. <laughs> yeah. I I had a, when I watched this movie for the first time, which was yesterday, um, I had a pounding headache and was quite sick. And so I had to watch this movie in like 20 minute bursts because this movie is like like the soundscape of 2001 which is the time period when like finally rap and hard rock merged into some horrible limp biscuit Lincoln Park crap. And that was like resonating through my head, my sick, sick head when trying to watch this movie. So my first experience with Fast and Furious was like these like 20 minute hiccups of the movie as I tried to survive the soundtrack. I had a very different experience than Tom. I saw this, I probably was a senior in high school I fit the demographic. I like cars. However, I'm actually more partial to muscle cars, but I'll take what I can get. They were street racing. So I was very interested. And even though it's not a great movie, I think it's highly entertaining. And I was, I've been really looking forward to talking about it. In fact, this could have been one of our earlier episodes of this podcast, if not the first, because F9 was pushed back quite a, a few times which is why we're now covering it today. I'm a big fan of the theory that you can't always eat, you know, filet mignon. Like you can't always watch like classic old films and things like that. So you got to You got to watch, you got to watch a blockbuster. You got to, you got to watch something fun every so often. It's the like, and, and what you want is like, you, you know, it's, it's basically like going to McDonald's kind of thing. So it's like, you want your quarter pounder. You, you want that sort of like light, easy, quick meal. And like, I'm not going to get it all the time. But I, but I can have, I can enjoy, I can enjoy my quarter pounder every so often. So, you know, I, I went into it expecting that. Um, yeah, it, it's essentially what I thought it was going to be. Um, it, it, it didn't. It, I, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about the plot. I didn't know a single thing about it. So it actually, it did. It surprised me in a few ways. I thought they, there was a couple things they didn't totally do the cookie cutter plot that I thought it was going to be. There are some massive, massive plot holes in there. And they're just like things that I was like, I was texting some of them to Tom as I was going through it, as I thought of them, but it's fun. Like it's a fun, it's dumb, but it's fun. Like it's, it's, you, you got to kind of throw out expectations and go into it with the, it's a quarter pounder with cheese and a thing of fries. Like just, just have fun and you'll, you'll, it's good.